For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, I want to begin with a story is not unusual for me. It's just kind of like my, my thing. I love stories. So in the 19th century, the greatest tightrope walker around was a guy named Charles Blondin. On June 30th, 1859, he became the first man in history to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Over 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope 160 feet above some raging waters. He worked without a net or a safety harness, and the slightest slip could prove fatal. In the days that followed, he would walk across Niagara Falls a lot of times. Once he walked across on stilts. Another time he walked and he took a chair with him. Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and he sat down midway across the Niagara Falls and he cooked an omelet and he ate it. And then once he pushed a wheelbarrow across the loaded, across loaded with 350 pounds of cement. On one occasion he asked the cheering spectators if they believed he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. And yes, they roared, absolutely we believe you could do it. And so he pointed out a guy cheering in the group and he said, sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow? And the man said, absolutely, you could. And he said, get in. And the man said, no, I'm not gonna do that. So he asked a number of people in the crowd. He said, will you get in, will you get in? And he had no takers. And so he actually offered to carry somebody on his back across the tightrope, across the Niagara Falls, and he could get no takers. Nobody, want, imagine that, nobody wanted to get on the back of a guy and have him piggyback them across the Niagara Falls. And so finally, his manager, Harry Colcord, volunteered, and he became the only man ever to be carried across the Niagara Falls on piggyback. And so the instructions that Blondin gave Harry Colcourt were these. He said, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcourt. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. And if I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing by yourself. If you do, we will both go down to our death. And the story goes that Blondin had put Colcourt down five times during the journey across the Niagara Falls, and he had to put him down, make some adjustments, pick him back up again, and then they walked across the Niagara Falls. We are in a series called The Cross, the Spirit, and the End of Death. And for the rest of Lent, we will be looking at Romans 8, 
One writer calls Romans 8 a rich vision of what it means to be human and an even richer vision of who God himself really is. If you really look at Romans 8, it is Paul brilliantly balancing the Old and New Testament, Passover, Exodus narratives, the tabernacle and the temple, the, lawless, the law as powerless and the law as fulfilled. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, life, death, and resurrection in one excruciating and yet hopeful chapter in the Bible. Romans 8 is God saying, I won't let go of you, you don't let go of me. It's gorgeous, but it's never at the expense of the truth of what that beauty costs. So last week, Cameron looked at verses 1 to 4, and he talked about God's grace over condemnation. This week, we're going to pick up where Cam left off, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. But Romans 8.4 is actually kind of our ramp in because as he talks through like what the law was powerless to do in, in verses 1 to 4, um, because it was weakened by the flesh that God did by offering up his son and Jesus became a sin offering and by that sacrifice he condemned sin in the flesh. So that, and then verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, Cam teed me up by talking to you about how we live according to the spirit versus the flesh last week. And we're going to actually delve into that today. But there's a couple of things that I want you to look at before we get there, before we get going. The reason why I say that the verses one through four, and in particular, verse four, is a ramp in, is because when you go through all of Romans, but in particular in Romans eight, Paul is doing these, um, he has these continuing thoughts. And so when you look at the ESV translation of this passage that we're looking at today, it begins with the word for, for those who live according to the flesh. But NIV, it just starts with those who live according to the flesh. I'm actually gonna be reading through um, using the NIV today, but King James also uses the word for, but N.T. Wright actually says that word for is actually even kind of a, a, a too weak word to use because it's not just a continuing thought that Paul is, is actually doing when he gets from verse four to verses five through 11. Actually, he suggests that a better translation for that word for is actually the phrase, look at it like this. So you read verse four, and verse four says, you know, those of us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, think of it like this. And then he goes to verse five. So this is, this is kind of an unpacking or a drilling down of verse four starting at verse five. So it's important to know that because if you don't know that, then you might be tempted to treat verses five through 11 as more of a therefore than a four or a look at it like this. And the difference is this, when you say this thing, therefore this, you might be tempted to think, what do I do now? Now, what do I do in light of this information? And what Paul is actually saying is, is this is who you are in light of what God has done. 
It's more about being than it is about doing in verses 5 through 11. It's more about experiencing God and not us performing our way into the kingdom. Why does this matter? It matters because we need to understand that this is God's work, not ours. Philippians 1 says that he began the good work and he is faithful to complete it. That we bear fruit, not that we produce fruit or create fruit or make fruit, but that we are tempted to be productive, we are tempted to take credit when we're productive than we are when we're fruitful because no tree is going, if I, if I try hard enough, an apple will pop out on my branch. You never see a tree going, that's what I'm talking about. You never see a tree do that because trees have the good sense to know that if the branches abide, then the fruit comes. And this is what God is trying to have us see. And Paul is trying to have us see in this passage that the life of a believer is a responsive life, that it's invitational, that we come because we are called, that we love because we were first loved. And so Romans 8 is this stunning picture. And in verses 5 through 11, what begins to unfold is not unlike the picture of Charles Blondin and Harry Colcord. Him saying, look up, Harry, you are no longer Colcord, you are Blondin. Be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do the balancing yourself. It is Paul saying, God is saying, look up, look up. It is no longer you, but Christ who lives in you. Let this mind be in you. Present your body a living sacrifice so that you may prove the will of God, that this is the way, walk you in it. If he sways, sway with him. If he moves to the right, moves to the right. If he moves to the left, move to the left. This is the picture. Romans 8, 5 through 11 is less an answer to the question, what should we do? But it is rather an answer to the question, how do we be? Now, the people of Christ, as, as the people of Christ, God has made it possible for us to be. That's like bad grammar, but it's good theology when you think about it. How, how do we be is the question. How do we live according to the Spirit? And so I want to call your attention to three things in this passage that are true for those of us who believe the good news of the gospel that are not true for those who don't believe. And what I want you to see is these three things. Thing one, we behold another way. Thing two, we get to be ruled by a new king. And thing three is that we belong to a better kingdom and we'll take them one at a time. To behold another way, looking at verse five, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. You know, Apple co-founder and um, CEO Steve Jobs was interviewed once and they told him what sets, they asked him what sets Apple apart from what's, what's gone before, from other technologies. And his response was really simple. He said, all Apple products are elegantly designed and usable right out of the box. Elegantly designed and usable 
right out of the box. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, the gospel was that before Apple was that. The gospel is elegantly designed and usable right out of the box. When we look at this passage, what we see in our passage is this, this beautiful progression. It talks about those who live according to the, the spirit versus the flesh, those who are governed by the spirit according to the flesh, and those who live in the realm of the spirit versus the, those who live in the, in the flesh. And what he means by this progression is this word live, it literally just means to be, to exist. Those who live, it's present active. Those who live and exist according to the flesh versus the spirit. Those who are governed by, that means those who have their minds, their thoughts and their minds set on flesh versus spirit. And then he talks about living in the realm, which is speaks to a fixed position of where you are in a specific place. And so the reason those things matter is because what it shows you is that the gospel is usable right out of the box. When you make the decision to believe the gospel, you are in a position where you trust the spirit versus the flesh. You move from there to a place where you are governed by, your thoughts become ones that are concerned with the spirit versus the flesh. And then you find yourself in a fixed position. When you look at this passage, what it is telling you is that when you live, when you decide that you are one who lives according to the flesh, when you are, when you are spirit versus flesh, excuse me, that those who live in accordance with the spirit, you put your mind on the things that the spirit desires. What schools you rules you. The thing that you will allow to teach you, the thing that you will allow to instruct you, is the thing that will rule you. And so when he talks about flesh versus spirit, it's important to understand at this point that he's not talking about material versus immaterial. He's not talking about um, a person versus a, a, a mystic, misty, intangible thing. He is talking about the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is a person, and he's talking about flesh. Now, when he talks about flesh, he's not just talking about who we are as a human being. Theologian John Murray defines flesh as human nature in its totality, as corrupted, directed, and controlled by sin. It's our whole being, but most often it is manifested in our physical bodies. It is the part of us that rejects God on God's terms. It's the part of us that lives for self. When you think about what it means to say that something is flesh, in particular in this passage, just move those letters around from is flesh to selfish. Same number of letters and it means basically the same thing, that you literally live for yourself. It's this journey back to Eden. When you think about Adam and Eve and how they made a decision to live for themselves. Now, just a side note, the enemy has exactly one move, one. Every single sin falls under this one category. Don't check with God, be God. That's pretty much it. Every single sin from Eden to 2024 is that. Don't check with God, be God. 
He has just the one move. The one thing he doesn't have is the imagination to create the world the way God did. But he's got that one move. Don't check with God, be God. If you spend your life going, you know what? Maybe you need to check. Think about Eve for a second. When the enemy said to her, did he really say that about that tree? Did he really mean that? You know what? I'm thinking that. What if she had said, let me check with God. What if she had said that? What if when she offered the fruit to Adam, Adam said, let me check with God. We'd be in a very different place today, would we not? So at the end of the day, just know that the enemy just has one move. Don't check with God, be God. And just check with God. Just check with him. So, it's the end of our commercial break. So what happens is when we live according to the flesh versus according to what the Holy Spirit desires, without the Spirit, we are deaf and blind to everything but our own feelings, our own urges, our own wants, our own needs. And we are controlled by and we are a prisoner of those wants and needs because we don't have another path. We don't have another way. We only have the one way, and that's just who we are. Paul talks in Romans 7, as a matter of fact, before he gets to 8, about how he's a prisoner in this body because he says, the things that I want to do, I won't do those things. The things that I don't want to do, those things I do. And he says, who will, in, in King James, he says, who will save me from this body of death? And he just has this very dramatic thing. And then he's like, you know, thank God for Jesus. And then he goes into Romans 8. It's a lovely little ramp. It it's really is beautiful because God through the cross, he says, freed us from not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin and the power that our own urges give us. We, we mind the spirit. We put, we put our minds on the things of the spirit. Now, when you think about what you tell your kids, mind your mother, mind your parents, mind your grandparents, it's more than just thinking about your parents, isn't it? When somebody tells you to mind somebody, it means that they want your mind to not just rest on that person, but on what that person wants and what that person needs and what that person desires, right? With the spirit, we can be other than people who just mind our physical urges and our personal urges. We become people who are not just what we are born to be as sinful flesh, but we become people who are who we were created to be and who we were designed to be. We are people who look up, who say, Abba, Father, which you'll look at in the next few weeks. We are people who see the demands of our flesh for what they actually are, which are simply echoes of the Garden of Eden. Verse 6 says, the mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So not only do we behold another way and can see another way other than our flesh, but we live according to the spirit and we can be ruled by a new king and not just 
ourselves and our own urges. The mind governed or occupied with the flesh is not only hostile, meaning that it hates, it's opposed to, it's an enemy of, and it is set against God, but it also does not submit or subjugate itself or place itself under the law of God. It cannot actually submit itself to God's law. It cannot do it. And so it takes you back to Joshua asking the children of Israel, choose life or choose death. You can't choose both and you can't choose neither. When you make a choice, you make a choice for the, the flesh or you make a choice for the spirit. And by the way, when it talks about how you cannot submit in the flesh to God's law, it's important to note that the law is not a thing that anybody meant to do away with. You'll hear people talk about the legalism of, of some people versus the spirituality of somebody else as if somehow the law is not good or not right or was meant to be done away with. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law but I came to fulfill the law. And if you think about the law itself, at the end of the day, just look at the Ten Commandments. The laws actually are there to tell you who God is and why you need to follow him, why you need to check with him versus trying to be him, right? If you look at all of that, and when we obey the law, we are simply saying, I see you, God, and I honor you. That's all obedience is at the end of the day. But that is impossible to do when we live according to the flesh. But when we live according to the spirit, we are following a new king. We are following the king of kings. We're following Christ who says, that Holy Spirit that you're following, he's gonna tell you about and talk, to you, talk you through who I am and why I matter. And you will be following me. So what does it look like when you are ruled by this new king? Well, it's not easy. So I want you to understand, first and foremost, that walking in the spirit is not easy. There's a, there's a mistaken impression that when we become followers of Jesus, that when we become um, believers, that when we become this new person, this new being, this new creature, that we will always feel like being followers of Jesus, that it will always feel good to do the things that God has given us to do. Why we don't think about the fact that Jesus didn't skip to the cross, I don't know. Why it didn't occur to us that the nails hurt, I don't know. Why it doesn't occur to us that he suffered, I don't know. And yet when we become believers, we are under this impression that we somehow should feel like doing the will of God all the time. We won't. We don't. It will not, it will, it's Romans 7. Paul's saying, I want to do right. In my deepest, deepest part of who I am, I am a Jesus guy. I'm a believer. And yet, there is a war with the members of my flesh. There is a war with my sin nature that says, I don't feel like this. I don't want to do this. This is hard. This is difficult. I had a pastor that I worked with one time who drove me nuts. He drove me crazy. And I kid you not, I went home and I remember saying to God, I prayed about it because I'm holy and <laughs> a believer. So I went home and I prayed and my prayer was basically, God, get your boy. 
that's pretty much what it was because I, my whole prayer was about what he'd done, how this made me feel, why this was hard, why this was difficult, and he's driving me nuts, and I am justified for being annoyed with him. God, get your boy. God's response to me was, here's what I need you to do. I'm going to get your boy. This is how I'm going to get him. I want you to go to the bookstore and buy a new journal. When you buy that journal, over the next few weeks, I want you to A, make a lunch appointment with him, and B, I want you to write down 40 times when you see me in him. That's how you're gonna get, get, get your boy? He's like, I want 40 times. And then you're going to go to lunch with him and you're going to give him that journal. I was not pleased with that solution. <laughs> And I also knew that it had to be him, it had to be the Holy Spirit, because that is not something I would have come up with. My get your boy looked a, looked a lot different. And so I go to the store, I get a journal, and over the next three or four weeks, I make an appointment with him to have lunch. Over the, and by the way, I had to pay for lunch. So I make this appointment with him, and every day, I, I watch him, I pay attention, I look at him, and every time he does something that reminds me of Jesus. I called them sunrises, because I happened to be reading a, a poem by Mary Oliver on sunrises. I would write out every sunrise, and in this journal, every one. So I get to number 39, and, and one of the things that he told me was, this is who I've called him to be. And so I write it down, whole thing. Morning of the lunch comes, I only have 39. I go, this is on you. <laughs> this, this, this is on you. I mean, you said 40, I only have 39. His response was, I'm going to show you prophetically what 40 is going to look like. And he wrote down how he would respond when I gave him the journal. And I said, okay, it's on you. Write it all down. Go to lunch. Turns out that this pastor long ago had written a journal out for the woman who would become his wife one day and gave it to her on their wedding day. And she didn't really respond as, I mean, she liked it, but she didn't, oh my God, it's amazing. And so he said it took him a long time to actually go through kind of healing about that because he was thinking, I wish that she had responded in, you know, wish it meant to her what it meant to me. And so it happened that the week prior to he and I having lunch, he'd had a dream about that journal and said, boy, wouldn't it be cool if somebody did a journal like that for me? And here I am sitting there with this journal of 40 sunrises and I read him 39, which is God's call on his life, and he does everything. He cried, he said this, he said that everything that was in 40, he did. He had gone on a, on a, on a month-long trip after that, and while he was gone, he took that journal with him, and he read it every single day. And it completely transformed our relationship. When we walk according to the Spirit, versus walking according to our flesh and the things we want to do. 
then sometimes get your boy means a very different thing to the spirit than it does to my flesh. But if I trust God, then as Romans 12 says, when we present ourselves a living sacrifice, that we will prove what is the will of God. We will prove what he actually desires when we go according to the things that he tells us to do. And so what it looks like is, is it says in, um, in verse 13, which will probably be next week sometime, it talks about putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And what we do and the reason and the way we put to death the misdeeds of the body is that we follow the deeds of the spirit. We follow the desires of the spirit. We don't justify ourselves. I was very much justifying myself in terms of how I wanted to treat this guy. And what our minds do, we do that, don't we? When we want to do what we want to do, we want to ignore somebody, we want to not forgive somebody, we want to go off on somebody, whatever the thing is that our flesh wants to do, our mind will help us justify that. But he tells us what I need is for your mind to be fixed on what the spirit would do and what the spirit desires and what is important to the spirit. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed or don't squeeze yourself into the mold of what the world would say. The world would say, don't forgive. The world would say, go off. The world would say, be angry, be mean. The world would say, withdraw. The world would say, be nice versus be kind. And then we have churches full of people who are nice with no honor because they're not actually trusting that, that the Holy Spirit is actually occupying your mind. You're kind of treating somebody nicely but there's stuff going in your brain. One of my favorite and least favorite passages is David saying, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, God. So if we love God and we love others and we trust him to know what he wants, he proves his will to us. Verse eight says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you're different, however, are, you, are, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. You have a fixed place in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. So not only do we behold another way when we live according to the Spirit, and not only can we be ruled by a new king, but we belong to a better kingdom. So why is the kingdom of God better than the kingdom of our own lives and of ourselves. When we pray, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. It is because we are giving a glimpse of new creation. And the reason this new kingdom, this new creation, this way of living in the spirit is better than the one we live in now is because it's relational, not transactional. We don't have to work so hard to be, to be who it is we're going to be. 
And so you look at verse 9, and it says, verse 9 says, You who are in the, not in the realm of flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And so this idea of belonging takes you back to pictures of the tabernacle, this idea that this place that was built so that God could dwell in there. God is saying, look, in this new kingdom, you're my tabernacle. You're my tabernacle. And I live in you. I belong to you. And you belong to me. And I indwell you. And so Paul invokes this image of the tabernacle of God, that God's saying, I am living in you and with you, and my presence is there. And the reason this kingdom is better be is because it is living. It is not dying. But Christ, verse 10 says, is in you, and even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And so Peter says, look, it's not just that the Holy Spirit is just kind of floating in there and it's no big deal, but literally we become, Second Peter says, we, his divine nature has given to us everything we need to be godly through our knowledge of him, who called us by his glory and goodness. And he says, through these things, he has, the, through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. We are not just having God dwell in us and indwell us, but he says, look, we are partaking of his divine nature. And so because we partake of this divine nature, even though our bodies are dying, we live. We are living, as Paul says. It's not me, but it is Christ who is living in me. And then thirdly, this new kingdom is indestructible. It is not mortal. And so if you look at verse 11, it says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. He says it much more dramatically in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He says, And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Now let's think about that for a second. The very power that is in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Whatever you've gone through, whatever you've encountered, whoever you are, whatever you've experienced, Whatever has been done to you, whatever you have done to others, if it ain't bigger than a dead Jesus, he's got this. I mean, if you think about this, whatever problems you've got, if it ain't bigger than a dead Jesus, he can deal with that. We're all less than a dead Jesus because the entire world dies with a dead Jesus. But God says, look, the power I've put in you is the power that raised a dead Jesus. It is not our work. Paul is speaking to us in Romans 8 about what it means to be Christians, to be believers. Who are we? Who are we giving ourselves permission to be when we walk 
according to the spirit versus according to the flesh. So yes, we can behold a different way and we can belong, we can be ruled by a different king and we can belong to a better kingdom. Ultimately, what we're talking about is an invitation because Paul is talking on the one hand about those who walk in the flesh, those are unbelievers. The ones who walk in the spirit are believers. Not perfect human beings, but believers who are working at this thing, just like Paul is in Romans 7. But maybe you're in here and you're not that. Maybe you don't know what it's like to walk in the spirit because you have not opened up the box of the gospel to use it immediately. And if that's the case, there is an invitation for you. There is a God who is saying, look up, look up, walk where I walk, go where I go, sway when I sway, do what I do. Trust me to tell you what it is I desire so that you can be transformed as you renew your mind. Is he speaking to you? Is he saying, look up? And if you have been living according to the Spirit and you're struggling, He's still saying the same, look up, look up. Be me, body, mind, strength. Let me live in you. Let me carry you. Let me hold on to you as you hold on to me. There's, there are people in here with babies. I have, you ever see that thing that babies do when they just kind of like arch their back like they don't really want you to hold them or something? And you're just thinking, you're a knucklehead, baby. Do you realize what would happen if I dropped you? If I gave you what you asked me for right in this moment, right? When they're just like, they're whining and they're doing that whole thing, right? I've never seen a parent go, fine, whatever. How much more would God hold on to us even when we want to let go of him? So he is saying to us, walk by the Spirit. Look up. Trust me. I'm holding on to you. Sway when I sway. Don't try to do this thing by yourself. Walk when I walk. Go where I go. Go left if I say go left. Paul does this amazing thing in Romans 8. He shows us this beautiful, gorgeous picture of what it means to hold and to be held. And then he invites us to live that life. Let's pray.